Welcome to TEN, the Tenant Experience Network. I'm your host, David Abrams. In this episode, we are connecting with Jeffrey Newman, Executive Managing Director at Savills North America. In this episode, we learned how Jeffrey began his career journey as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., with a focus on social justice issues. What got him into real estate? The lure of money. Jeffrey took the opportunity to get into the CRE space with Studley, now Savills, and under the watchful eye of industry experts, he was fortunate enough to be able to cut his teeth working on a landmark building in Lower Manhattan, where he learned the ins and outs about sales and redevelopment. When the financial crisis hit and many of Jeffrey's projects went into hibernation, he was presented with an opportunity to fulfill a lifelong dream of living in Africa. And so began a fascinating four-year journey in East Africa and the inspiring lessons he carries from that experience. Upon his return to the U.S., Jeffrey landed at Newmark, and for the next eight years, he worked on many different redevelopments, achieved industry recognition, and developed some expertise in the not-for-profit sector. This work, along with launching a photography museum at the same time, has led Jeffrey back to where it all started, at Savills. He attributes much of his success and professional acumen to mentorship. Jeffrey acknowledges the magnitude of the challenge in front of the CRE industry as B and C class buildings strive to remain relevant. We are looking at a 15 year time horizon for the continued evolution of this very large segment of the market to perhaps take on a new purpose or reimagined use. We had an interesting discussion around the connection between buildings and communities. Jeffrey offers a unique perspective on technology and the potential impact on the amount of real estate space needed, both in commercial as well as not-for-profit settings. I absolutely loved hearing about Jeffrey's journey, and I hope you will too. We're excited to share this podcast with you, so be sure to subscribe to TEN so you never miss an episode of the Tenant Experience Network. And now I'd like to welcome Jeffrey to the show. I'm really glad you could be with us today. How are you? Good, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, to get started, I'd love to hear about your journey to your current position role. How did you get started? Sure. So I'll give you a 60-second uh, version of a very long story. <laughs> um, so I was actually working in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist. And um, I worked for an organization that was really primarily focused on social justice issues. So we would go to Capitol Hill and lobby on particular bills and what was happening. And uh, I very much enjoyed the work and really never thought about commercial real estate, never thought about what office buildings were, how people ended up in them, never thought about how property was developed. Um, but my family had had some history in the real estate business. And uh, my aunt at the time uh, was running the real estate for Cisco. And they were considering uh, taking 600,000 square feet and being the anchor tenant at the building, which was going to be built on top of the Port Authority in New York. And <clears throat> I was out in California and I was visiting her and she said, you know, geez, all these guys are <clears throat> doing all this interesting stuff and it might be something that you're interested in. I said, ah, probably not interested in any of that. <laughs> and she said, well, they're making a lot of money. And it sort of just sort of piqued my interest. <laughs> I'm all, all of a sudden I'm interested. Right. And uh, she said, well, why don't you go up to New York and uh, meet this guy, uh, Ira Schumann, who uh, was her broker at Studley at the time, who was negotiating the lease um, on top of the Port Authority and uh, see what you think of him. 
So I got on a train and I came up to New York and uh, I met Ira and uh, was completely sort of fascinated and interested in what he had to say. Um, I loved the energy that existed in the office place. I met all the different brokers that were there and they seemed to be sort of a lot like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> he said, uh, if you work really hard, uh, you'll make a million dollars. And I said, a million dollars? You mean in a year? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it just sort of blew me away because I'd never, it, we didn't grow up with any money and it never, it really occurred to me that people were doing that. Uh, so I went to wash back to Washington and, and kept doing my job, but I couldn't kind of get that out of my head. Right. And so um, eventually about three months later, I agreed that uh, I would give it a shot. And so I came up to New York in um, January of 2001, which was really right as the tech bubble was mm-hmm. blowing up and that impact on the office sector. Um, and, you know, obviously a number of months before 9-11 and uh, came up and, and started working for what was at the time Studley and is now Savills. Right. Um, Ira was really focused on, you know, not the nonprofit world and, and, and sales and development and, you know, sort of interesting, strategically difficult, thoughtful transactions. Um, and having him, you know, really as my mentor sort of, um, you know, took me down that road as well, down that path. Uh, and he at the time had been hired to sell a building uh, in Lower Manhattan uh, at 5 Beekman Street. Beautiful, stunning landmark uh, New York building. Um, and he put me on the project and, you know, just sort of said, run with this and I'll give you guidance. And, you know, this is how you'll learn the business, which mm-hmm. is how you learn the business. It's an apprenticeship. It's not you can't go to college and figure right. out how to do commercial real estate in Manhattan. Uh, you have to carry somebody's bag around for three or four years uh, who is invested in you and your success. Uh, so I did that and uh, would go down every day and show the building to prospective purchasers and and learned everything I could about the building, mm-hmm. about the engineering, about the MEPs, about the structure, about the architecture, about uh, the nature of zoning, about air rights, about landmarks, about you know, everything that you could sort of conceive of as as part of a, a sale or redevelopment process of, of commercial real estate in New York. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 hit and, you know, really everything went on pause in the city for the next year or so. Um, but then as interest rates started to come down, of course, the commercial property market started to take off again. And then we had a very strong run um, of about six years where we did you know a number of sort of the most notable transactions in new york at the time we did about 300,000 feet for dhl 250,000 feet for new school a series of dormitories represented a bunch of nonprofits, red cross redevelopment projects ground up buildings um so we had you know just it was it was a it was a in general a great time in the commercial real estate business in New York. And it was really, in many ways, the birth of the modern sort of form of the business. Um, 
and then we moved into the uh, to the third crisis of my short tenure in New York, which was the financial crisis in 2008. Right. Uh, and during the time period, see, I promised you this would be a one minute version no, of it's, the story, it, but it's not. <laughs> this is actually my favorite question. And I just love hearing about the different ways in which people um, come to this business. So please continue. Okay. So uh, when the financial crisis hit, the stuff that we were working on, um, you know, really just went into hibernation. And um, I had always wanted to live overseas and always wanted to live specifically in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so I took the opportunity to do that. And I, I resigned from, from Studley at the time uh, and got on a plane two weeks later to, uh, to Africa, to, to Cairo specifically, um, took an apartment and I spent the better part of the next four years in, in East Africa doing kind of micro loans with my own money, um, for people that really it's kind of the bottom rung of the, the social ladder in African countries. There's kind of an informal trash collection, um, business in most major African cities, at least in East Africa. And um, the trash is oftentimes collected by people that live in the trash dumps themselves. Um, and they take the trash and they break it down its component parts and they recycle it and they sell it off. Um, and that's how they earn a living. And um, they exist in the most horrible conditions you've ever seen, um, heartbreaking stuff. Um, but they have a tremendous spirit about them and they are the most efficient recyclers in the world. Nobody's even close. Um, they recycle at a rate of about 92%. So 92% of the matter that comes into them, they're able to break that down and recycle it in some form. Um, in the case of plastic, they, they break it down, they melt it, they pelletize it, they put it in bags, and then they sell it down uh, the chain where it gets recycled and used in other material. Um, so I was there, uh, for, as I say, the better part of four years. Uh, and the end of my time in Africa was around the Egyptian Revolution. Um, so I was uh, fortunate enough to be, or unfortunate enough, depending on your perspective, mm -hmm. uh, in Tahrir Square during that um, protest and, and crackdown period. Um, and a number of, about a month or so after that, I came back to the United States with actually a young kid in tow um, who wanted to come live in the United States and wanted to study. And his family had sort of begged me to take him out of what was a, um, a, a a very unsettled time, to sort of say the least. Um, and so I agreed to do that. My girlfriend at the time, who would become my wife, agreed to do it as well. So we brought him back with us. To, I brought him back with us to New York. Um, and uh, he ended up studying um, here for about three years and then went uh, back to Africa and is now involved in the recycling business and, and teaching others to do the same. So uh, a minor success story in a, at a very difficult time. Wow, that's incredible. Amazing. So I came back to New York. Again, I told you this was going to be a one minute story. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, it's only one minute. In some, other, <laughs> in some other, you know, form of time, maybe. But right. Well, you can you can edit this all out, right? <laughs> Uh, so I came back to New York and um, <clears throat> rather than coming back to work at Studley, uh, which I did consider pretty strongly, I thought it was probably best for me to go and kind of carry my own bag, if you will, uh, and see if I could do this thing on my own. So um, I knew Barry Gossin over at Newmark and uh, decided that I would go over there. 
and spent the better part of eight years there, um, really focused on the same kind of stuff that I had learned um, while carrying Ira's bag uh, around the city. And the first major project that I ended up doing at that point was um, a very large land assemblage in the Flatiron District on 22nd Street, just west of Park Avenue South um, for uh, what would become Madison Square Park Tower, which is this sort of 800-foot-tall cantilevered uh, residential luxury condominium building uh, down there. And that was the result of uh, assembling kind of eight different parcels and uh, moving rent-regulated tenants and removing existing tenants and tearing down buildings and purchasing air rights and you know, sort of everything that you could conceivably do as part of a pre-development process. Um, and I spent uh, about two years uh, doing that, uh, at the beginning of which I was about 6'1", and at the end of which I was about 5'11". <laughs> <laughs> and um, ended up winning uh, Revney's Most Ingenious Deal of the Year award for that. And <clears throat> that was really my sort of springboard um, uh, being kind of out there on my own for that kind of work, that uh, representing nonprofits, that the, the the sort of development biz side of the business. Most nonprofits tend to be, you know, kind of land rich and cash poor, um, and religious institutions as well. But both of them sort of tend to sit in the same boat. Um, and there's typically a way of uh, using the real estate to forward the mission. Right. Um, and provide enough cash to kind of ensure their survival and perpetuity. Um, and so I did a bunch of those deals uh, over that eight year period, took a little pivot and built a photography museum in New York called Photographiska, um, actually on the other side of Park Avenue South and 22nd Street in a landmark uh, building 281 Park Avenue South. Uh, with myself and a couple of different partners, one being A.B. Rosen, who owns RFR uh, here in New York, and uh, a German investor. And we spent uh, uh, almost $50 million renovating the building and opening the business. Um, right. And so it was, it's, 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 it's such an interesting component of, of what we do in that you kind of never know where you're going to end up. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, I ended up as general partner owning a photography museum in New York. You know, who would have sort of who would have thought that would happen? Um, but it was a completely fascinating deal. It's it's still open to this day and and uh, uh, kind of a very sexy, interesting space. Mm -hmm. If you ever get the chance, you should go see it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then uh, about uh, two years ago. Um, kind of in the middle of the pandemic, we had, uh, uh, myself and my family had gone away. We had gone to Lake George and we were sort of staying up there. And I was kind of thinking about myself and my career and about who I liked to be around and who I liked to spend my time with. And I'd always looked so fondly on my years at Studley and, and the people that I worked with, um, and the winter trips that we would take, which were these reward trips to these far off places like China and all kinds of different places um, as a culture building exercise. And, and I just always, um, it just always sort of stayed close to my heart. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> they reached out to me and, and started recruiting me back. Um, and uh, over, you know, a period of eight months or something, we agreed to do that. And then I came back here a little over a year ago. 
Wow. So that's my one minute version. Okay. That, that's a great 60 second story, first of all. So we're almost done with the podcast now, right? <laughs> so we've run out of time. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Um, but I, quite honestly, it is my favorite question. And it's just fascinating to hear all the ways in which people eventually arrive at this business. And um, and uh, it is a crazy business and it's a fascinating business. And I think the fact that people come at it from so many different perspectives and so many different experiences is what I think makes it even that much more interesting. So to you, then, I would ask, in the end, why do you think you were so uniquely suited to this opportunity? Like what enabled you then to be successful? Because you know, not everybody who somebody might say to them, hey, you know, come into this business, you might make a million dollars. Not everyone's going to be successful ultimately. Uh, that's true. And in fact, most people aren't successful. And I've sort of spent some time thinking about that through my career and kind of analyzing why that is so. Um, and for me, it comes back to a couple of different issues. The first is uh, mentorship. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned before, if if you don't have someone who's skilled in the business, um, who's taking care of you, who's teaching you, who is, um, you know, telling you how to kind of do this on a day to day basis, how to interact with people, how to speak with people, how to um, get your point across, how to you know, think about real estate transactions in their entirety, how to figure out zoning, how to figure out lease, lease how, how to do kind of all of these different things, which just takes years to figure out, especially if you do so, if you have kind of a comprehensive practice where, you know, you can do leasing or you can do sales or you can do development uh, or you can open a photography museum, right. um, which is probably the only lease in the history of the city of New York, which was signed by a broker. <laughs> 45,000 foot lease. Um, um, and so it gave me perspective on what it meant to take on those kinds of obligations. Um, and so all of that kind of experience together shapes you and molds you. Um, but if you don't have that sort of, um, if the clay isn't sort of fertile to begin with, it's hard to kind of do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that fertility is based on um, a couple of things. One is being kind of street smart. Um, and in many ways, you know, people of my age were raised to be that because there wasn't a tremendous amount of parental oversight. We were just sort of, you know, let out to kind of figure things out on our own. Uh, and it created a lot of, you know, sort of street sense in people. Um, and that goes to how you read people, how they read you, how you express yourself. Uh, how you express your ideas, um, whether or not you're you can do that in sort of a a, a charismatic way that that lets like, lets people believe in you and right. and and expresses your experience and your level of expertise. Um, so it's that kind of a package um, that 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 really I think makes sense for this business. But it's, you know, as you know, it's a very odd business in that there are no barriers to entry, right? So you have just sort of this flood of people that get into it. And what ends up happening is if you're on the right track and if you have the right guidance, right. Um, you know, most of the business is done by, you know, probably 15% of people. Right, right. And well, for the rest, it's a struggle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, two key things you mentioned, the, the mentorship and the street smarts, um, that, that totally makes sense to me. Um you know, I think we can agree that the commercial real estate industry has just gone through one of the most turbulent periods of time we can ever, ever remember. Although, as you pointed out in your opening remarks, you've been through a couple of them before. 
Um, you know, commercial real estate, still the largest asset class in the world. Um, you know, but it's still rebounding really from this prolonged period of historically low occupancy levels. And it's really continuing to evolve to meet now these new emerging needs of people. Um, and at the same time, it's dealing with the disruption of new technology in the industry. Um, you know, ultimately, we think that's a good thing, you know, helping to deliver new space and new service and new ways. Now, my team at Hilo, you know, we really believe that the workplace uh, is now just much part of a much larger um, workspace ecosystem. And, 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 you know, while buildings may be at the core, um, we're now fighting with or dealing with the fact that people continue to work from their dining room table, a neighborhood co-working space, a local cafe, a deck at their summer home. You know, so what do you think all that means? You know, what are you seeing right now within the industry as to how perhaps we're reimagining the way in which the industry, you know, can meet the needs of, of people um, in this new world? Right. Well, I, I might take a little bit of a different viewpoint on that. Um, sometimes I think when you reimagine businesses, um, kind of in this in this era where you know we sort of reimagine businesses every few years, um, sometimes there's you know a fair amount of destruction associated with that. Um, and you know, no better example is is. Uh, the New York City cab business um, when Uber came in, when when the cab business used to cabs run on what are called medallions. Each each cab has to have its own medallion, and medallions used to sell for a million and a half dollars a piece. Um, and then when Uber came in and COVID came in, and that demand was sort of destroyed. Um, I, I think the most recent, you know, the, around a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so along with that has been, you know, the livelihoods of people that kind of, you know, drive these things. So um, while, you know, rebirth is, you know, an interesting thing and, and you know, tends to be ultimately positive, um, it is not without its victims. And right. in the commercial business here in New York, um, we haven't, so a lot of my focus is on the development side of the business, and we haven't seen that because the residential market, which is generally the highest and best use um, for any of these properties, has remained strong, and the development business has remained vibrant. But in the office sector, we've had, you know, kind of a tale of two cities in a sense, right? So you have you know, your trophy buildings in your class A buildings, which probably account for, you know, 60% of the marketplace, um, have tended to do well. Those right. buildings are well capitalized. They're owned by, um, you know, big firms um, that can afford to pour money into those buildings um, and renovate them in a way that resonates with the new workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Vornado is doing that in, in Penn Plaza. Um, they're, you know, essentially they're taking out floors of buildings and, you know, reimagining them as as work environments, as restaurant spaces, as gymnasiums, as yoga rooms, as you know, all of these things that are sort of designed to bring people into that uh, space and allow them to function as if it was, in a sense, uh, you know, their home. Right. Um, and I think that that has been attractive, and I think that that has been reasonably successful thus far, though not without a significant capital investment. Mm -hmm. And then you have the rest of the buildings in New York, which are kind of the B and C buildings, you know, which depending on the stats you sort of look at are, 
40 or 45 percent um, of the marketplace. That's 150, 175 million square feet of those buildings. Um, and the, the the demand for those buildings, we've we've watched in real time that demand destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the the question is, and I'm not sure I have a good answer to it yet. Uh, or anybody has a good answer to it yet, is, you know, what are we going to do with those? Um, it's not a small amount of space, right? It's, we're talking about 150 million square feet of space. And how do you reimagine all of that space in such a way that, you know, you outrun its debt clock or what, whatever? All of those buildings tended to take on, you know, a pretty significant amount of debt what, when we were in a low interest rate environment. Right. And there's been some of the kind of kicking the can down the road, which we've seen in, in you know, as I say, since 2000, I think this is my fifth crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've seen that sort of can get kicked down the road at each time, right? Everybody, you know, has, has set up a distressed fund during each one of those time periods. They've never been able to put the money out. Um, and so the question now is, is this different? Um, and it looks to me like it's different uh, for sure. Um, and I'm not sure that we can reimagine that much office space. So, you know, real estate's like an oil tanker, you know, especially in large cities, you can't just turn it around, right? Right. Leases, you can't just turn around. They're significant commitments for a significant amount of space at at significant financial uh, expenditure over a very long period of time. And these class B buildings and class C buildings are sort of in the same position, right? There's, There's debt that matures for you know a, a number of different periods of time over a number of years and each one is held by a different kind of sponsor and some of those sponsors are more you know financially able to manage this this transition uh some of them are less so and they've gone back to lenders and said here are the keys and the lenders say i don't want the keys thank you very much um and so we're kind of in this period now of of how does this get reimagined um and one of the ways it's getting reimagined is is the 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 current mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, who both my wife and I supported uh, very strongly, um, is starting a rezoning process right now in uh, what was traditionally the garment area of New York to allow for residential uh, development of exactly those class B and class C office buildings. Some of that will result in those buildings getting torn down. Some of that will result in those buildings getting uh, repurposed. Um, the, the part of the issue that they have in those buildings is that the valuations and the debt was so high that tearing them down really means that the land itself takes on kind of an extraordinary value. And so it's very hard to make that work in a development business, uh, especially in New York, and especially now that there's no 421A anymore. And this is another critical issue that we have in the city in that without really the tax incentives associated with rental housing development, it's it's almost impossible to build rental housing. And it's what politicians don't really understand because they don't exist in the real world. And they never have had kind of real jobs, right? So they just sort of imagine this social engineering in a way that you can do these things and it doesn't tend to work in the real world. So um, I, I would say, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a generational viewpoint for those buildings. Right. I, I view the repurposing of those buildings as something that's going to happen over the next 
you know, 15 years, maybe 20 years, not the next two or three years. Yep. It's entirely too large a sector of the marketplace. Um, and it's entirely too complicated to do that in a short period of time. Uh, we can incentivize that um, and 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 do our best to make it so and um, and and hopefully kind of speed that process along. But it is it is a significant issue. Don't let anybody fool you. Yeah. And it's also impossible to predict three, five, 10 years out, you know, exactly what the future of those, you know, the demand for, you know, space in those BNC buildings will be. There are some, you know, occupiers that simply do not want to be in a 30, 40, 50, 60 story building um, that want a more boutique experience, that want to be part of just a small building community, maybe have only entire floor plate. Um, and I also think that this is an opportunity for some of those BNC building owners to to really ramp up their delivery of customer experience in a way that maybe some of these large and, you know, class A building operators can't do in the same way. Um, so maybe they can't have the rooftop patios and the, the green spaces and, you know, the gymnasiums, but they can ramp up services and experience in a different way um, that, you know, again, I think some might really value. And that's certainly from, you know, our perspective and what we're building as a, a customer experience, tenant experience platform, we see there's opportunity. To your point, you know, the 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 the, the long-term use cases of that B and C category, which is massive, you know, again, could take years, but in the interim, these building operators still need to function and they are signing leases. We we do work with some of these B and C building owners today, and they're off, they're renting space. Um, and they're doing some pretty creative things within their buildings to be more competitive and and to be able to compete with the flight to quality. So um, it's it's an interesting time for sure. It is, and it look that that success is not without precedent, right? So the the Flatiron area of Manhattan is is a perfect example of how you can do it and how you can do it successfully. Those were all B buildings, right? Um, they were there was a tremendous economic investment put into them, um, and they became attractive. Um, but part of part of and not not to be too much of a downer, but part of the experience of those buildings is that they tended to be larger and they tended to be on larger floor plates, which made them make sense for larger tenants. So you could sign a lease for 300,000 square feet in flat iron if you're a tech company, and it could make sense because you could be across seven or eight floors. But if you're in a typical B building, which is more like 50 feet of frontage, typically sandwiched between a bunch of other buildings on a side street, not a block front building, um, it's a very, very, very different tenant experience. And it's very hard to make the kind of tenant experience that you described, uh, which is sort of typical of kind of the flat iron buildings, because there's not, in a sense, enough space, enough light, enough air in order to make that so. Right. So it's building specific. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I think a lot about buildings. I think about their places and neighborhoods and cities. You know, our view really is that buildings are not siloed. They're, they're not four walls. They really are very much a part of um, a community. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on sort of how you think workplaces can play a role in creating, you know, larger and more connected communities. And, and I guess also given some of your specific area of expertise in the not-for-profit world and the religious community um, aspect of the industry as well. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, well, what specifically do you mean? Well, again, you know, buildings are not independent. Buildings, you know, it's just not, you know, a building and everything that you need is within those four walls. They really do depend on what's in and around the community. You talked about the, 
the, the Flatiron District. So what what helps to create um, you know a better community for buildings? You know what what aspects of community do you think? You know we're working a lot with BIDs, business improvement districts, trying to find ways to collaborate. Just any thoughts in general on that? So um, you, you know the, the sort of the simple answer is amenities, and you know to the degree that those exist in a neighborhood. Um, it creates an attractive environment. And so Flatiron, again, is a great example. And it's an area that I know well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just on, on that Park Avenue and 22nd Street um, intersection, um, I did the Madison Square Park Tower building. I did the photography museum on the other side of the street. I sold the United Charities headquarters for them on the other corner. Um, all of all that, that area has a tremendous amount of young people, right. restaurants, cultural experiences, yeah. parks, um, and a diverse group of people, both extremely wealthy, um, and students. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think that, that is part of it. So when when I when I think of buildings as as part of a larger community, as kind of a living breathing aspect of that larger community, which I agree with you they are. Um I think the community in many ways defines what those buildings can be. Yeah, love right? it. Yeah. So it it's very hard to um you know, shoehorn kind of what you talked about into um, certain neighborhoods, right, in New York City, but it very much does fit in other neighborhoods. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think there's nuance, and I think it's not yeah. a cookie-cutter solution, but I think it's the the realization, and as you just described, you know, the opportunity to to be more more customized to the um, the different parts of what that community makeup looks like. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree with that. I would yeah. agree with that. And I think, look, it's also it's a hopeful perspective. Right. And we need that perspective, especially in New York right now. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Let's take a short commercial break and we'll be right back. This episode of 10 is proudly brought to you by Hilo. Hilo is a rapid deployment workplace engagement platform for the hybrid world that enables building operators to connect to their tenants, whether they're at work, at home or anywhere in between. We are in the midst of a seismic shift in the evolution of the workplace. Now more than ever, it's clear that the most important asset of a building is the people. Commercial real estate leaders recognize that tenants and employees want new kinds of spaces, services, and amenities to support having the flexibility to work from anywhere. Workplace engagement solutions that connect hybrid working people to buildings no matter where they are have become a major differentiator as buildings compete to retain current tenants and attract new ones. Hilo empowers building operators to meet this challenge. To learn more about Hilo and schedule a demo, visit HiloApp.com. And now I'd like to welcome back to the show, Jeffrey Newman, Executive Managing Director at Savills North America. I'm really enjoying our conversation. So let's, let's dive into our next question. You know, I've talked a little bit about technology and how it's played such a significant role in shaping how building operators deliver great experience to their tenants. And workplace engagement now is really uppermost in everyone's mind as it presents so many opportunities for doing things differently. I'm just curious from what you're seeing, your experience, um, you know, as we continue to work to evolve, uh, to meet the evolving needs of people in buildings, are you seeing any technologies that are sort of 
getting your attention uh, uh, that, that are contributing to how we're delivering better experiences in buildings? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's kind of all the environmental components that I think everybody has sort of championed since the pandemic um, started. Um, there's also kind of the the, the side of it where um, companies can manage when people are using office space, there are apps where you can make an appointment to use your office during a certain period of time. Um, I, I view that as as interesting and and favorable from a worker's perspective. I view it as less favorable from a macro perspective when I think about the commercial real estate business in general, especially in New York, in that that's that's bound to be uh, something that that dampens demand uh, when tenants come to sign a lease because they've sort of managed a way to do more in a sense in less space just because there's there's not that many people there so those efficiencies um from a tenant experience perspective and from a from a tenant uh financial perspective you know hurt hurt the overall commercial sector and i think that's probably worth you know that new technology that new way of working is probably um it, you know a 10 or 15 percent um uh, drop down in 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 what what people will want in terms of commercial office space going forward. Now, again, as I said, these are oil tankers, right? So it takes yeah. a while to turn them around. But as the leases come up, I mean, I think that's you know part of what we're starting to see. Um, in in kind of where I like to spend a lot of my time, which is that nonprofit world and the religious institutions world, and um, they they tend to have buildings that are you know, have, have long ago passed their useful life. Um, and so when they think about their tenant, tenant experience going forward or the experience of their congregation going forward, so they're start, starting to think about really how does technology play into that? How does technology serve the mission in a sense? Um, and from a real estate perspective, from a development perspective, we're 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 doing those kinds of projects right now, and that means, you know, very advanced broadcast systems, uh, ways of bringing people in from home, especially congregations if you're a religious institution. Most nonprofits, I would say that the the work from home environment has hit nonprofits certainly as hard uh, as anyone, if not harder. And so part of this experience or the reimagining of the real estate or the redevelopment or the building of new space, um, you know, is, is taking that into account. And that's happening in real time. That That's happening on projects that I'm working on right now, for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think on both fronts, on the, on the commercial and, and then in, in the religious setting and not for profits. I mean, I think the fact is that the reality means in some cases people might need less space given the way the world is unfolding the question is how can technology still maximize the use of space how can it bring people back to spaces in a comfortable manageable way um so you know we can't not we can't ignore the fact that overall demand um and the amount of space that companies and or religious institutions need is going to likely reduce but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be more companies that will take up that space and find more creative ways in which to use that space and still need space to bring their people together. Um, I would agree with that completely. There are, there are, there, there's no end to the opportunities that exist right now. Um, and for people in our business, um, 
in, in many ways, it has never been a more fertile time to plant seeds, right? You're like a farmer in a sense, right? Yeah. You go out and you plant seeds in the fall and you kind of harvest them in the spring. These are all very long-term transactions. Right. Uh, and this is a great time to be a farmer. It's a great time for, for, for seed planting. Uh, you know, it's going to require a lot of vision and those and, and, and commercial estate has always had visionaries, right? Um, and so today is no different. Um, our closing speed round is to get an opportunity to get to know you, Jeffrey, a little bit better on okay. a personal level. Um, so when you are not and you shared with this actually in some of your opening comments, but when you're not working, what do you enjoy doing today? So I have two young kids. Uh, I have a daughter who is uh, seven and a son who is uh, five and a half. So my free time is more or less spent with them. Um, for example, yesterday I took them, um, uh, you'll get a kick out of this, indoor skydiving. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you can imagine a seven-year-old and a five-year-old floating yeah. in a tube. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I it, it's it's I, I had kids very late, so it's kept me young yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And then when I'm not doing that, I like playing golf. Well, I, I know people have had kids later in life. I like to say it's not late. It's just what was right for you. That's right. Right. Um, what is your drink of choice? Uh, alcoholic, non-alcoholic? Uh, Belgian beers. My drink okay. of choice. All right. Uh, Chimay's and Delirium's. And I don't know if you've had them ever, but they're um, uh, they tend to be much more potent than uh, your kind of average beer. So you can right. get away with drinking significantly less. Got it. I'm, I'm more of a wine guy. So, uh, what what's your what's your favorite wine? Favorite wines, I'd say definitely Italian, um, California, South American. Um, yeah, big big fan of you know big wines, meaty, robust, um, earthy, fruit forward, chocolate, you know, vanilla, all all those good flavors. But me too. Me too. Uh, any favorite movie or current TV series that you're now watching? uh oh last of us okay have you watched this i have not oh it's based on a video game it's fantastic it's it's a sort of a zombie apocalypse kind of uh thing but but really well done um and uh it's it's just fantastic it's it's running right now i think i, I think we had episode six last night or something okay very cool um name one way in which technology has improved how you live or work um I mean, you know, it just it creates obvious efficiencies. Um, but you know, those efficiencies come with demand, right? It's demand on the user, right? So technology is a bargain in a sense, right? I mean, you, the, the bargain is yes, I'm more available. Yes, I'm it's easier for me to work remotely or from other places, but you know, uh I'm constantly on it. Right. And you know, I don't view that as a good thing. <laughs> Agreed. You've got to find the balance, right? Right. What is your personal choice for days spent in person uh, working with your colleagues versus working from anywhere? Uh, so I tend to be kind of an office junkie. I, I'm sort of here five days a week unless, you know, something uh, comes up or I'm on a vacation or I'm out playing golf with a client or something. Um, I'm typically here. Um, I think it's it's very hard to uh, replicate the office environment from home. It's very hard to be efficient. Uh, there's certainly no um, uh, engagement with your colleagues and development of ideas, um, which 
is is incredibly important. It's it's the most important thing of being in an office together. Um, so yeah, I I'm more of an office junkie, I think, than most. Got it. I get it, and I certainly see the value and benefit myself. Um, listen, Jeffrey, this has been a fascinating episode. You've shared so many uh, amazing insights. You know, going right back to your your journey to commercial real estate. Um, I, I've loved hearing um, your entire story. Um, I hope this is just the first of many conversations that you and I will have. Um, and, and talking about this industry that clearly we both have a lot of passion for. Um, and uh, let's stay connected. And uh, once again, thanks for taking the time. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to love the episode. Thank you. I would love that, David. Thank you so much. I really did enjoy it. Thank you for having okay. me. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. I want to thank Jeffrey Newman for joining me on this episode of 10 and for contributing to the global conversation around buildings being a part of a robust ecosystem helping to build great companies, and that they are vital in the effort to cultivate and support great people and teams. The future of the workplace will likely take many forms, and we will continue to explore what that looks like together. Subscribe to 10 for more conversations with leading CRE industry professionals and experts who all have something to say about tenant experience and the future of the workplace. We love hearing from you, so if you enjoyed this episode of 10, Please share, add your rating, and review us through your preferred podcast provider. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on a future episode, please reach out to me directly at david at hiloapp.com. And until our next episode, I wish you all continued success in building community where you work and live. Thank you.